Well, Paul writes this letter to this church in Philippi, and um, it really is wanting to encourage them. And at heart, what he's saying is, look, you need to understand that the Christian faith is not just simply um, an idea or or a philosophy or, or a religious package. It is a life-transforming truth. Uh, And as we're looking through that, we're beginning to see the way in which some of the the demands that the Bible makes on us really are kind of homing in and becoming life-transforming. We're going to be looking at the the second part of our reading this afternoon. So let's uh, have a look at that from verse 17. And uh, we see the opening verse there, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. All of us in different ways, in fact, the world is, is pretty much in, in, in every aspect is uh, focused on the idea of mentoring, isn't it? Uh, there are mentors for all sorts of different situations Uh, Some of you will be in school, and I guess that some of you will have mentors in school, Uh, people who are there to help, to guide, to shape you, uh, and to encourage you. If you're into any kind of sport, you'll probably have uh, a mentor. If you're you're training in, in work, you will have had mentors. Mentors are incredibly important. Some of you might even be mentors in different uh, situations. Isn't it incredibly important that we choose our mentors well. Back in the 1990s, uh, his name was Marco Pantani. Some of you, probably very few of you will know him. He was a famous cyclist. Marco Pantani was known as the pirate. He was an Italian cyclist who was uh, well known for partway up ridiculously steep climbs. He would rip the bandana off his head throw it down onto the ground as if to challenge all of those around him to say, come on then, beat me. And the pirate would, would then power up the rest of the climb. In 2004, Marco Pantani died of a cocaine overdose, lonely in a hotel room. His life had spiraled out of control Uh, because I think it was in the 2000 tour, he was uh, caught for doping. So all of those moments when he looked so amazing, so incredible, probably along with pretty much most of the riders alongside him, he was doping. There's a young Italian cyclist by the name of Riccardo Rico who burst onto the scene in the early 2000s. And uh, he quite openly said, Marco, because he's Italian, Marco Pantani was an incredibly uh, successful Italian cyclist. He said, he's my my mentor. He's the guy who I'm going to model myself on. And uh, he was a small guy in the same way as Pantani was, and uh, he was a fantastic hill climber. In the 2008 tour, he tested positive for drugs. You see, he decided that he wanted uh, Pantani as his mentor. He'd modeled himself on him 
only, he'd not only modeled himself on all the good stuff, he'd modeled himself on all the bad stuff as well. He was banned for a couple of years. He came back in February this year. And uh, in fact, he was ra- first race, or second race that he was in. He was rushed into hospital partway through the race after a self-administered blood transfusion. Uh, some people go to remarkable lengths to be successful in sport. A self-administered blood transfusion. Right, mind blows. Uh, that is what he had been determined to do, to model Pantani. He's now out of the game. I really hope his life doesn't spiral out of control in the same way as Pantani's did. Choose your mentors well. But aren't you a bit surprised? Isn't it a bit surprising to see the Bible suggesting exactly the same? Look at what it says here. Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, listen, let me be your mentor. That is a remarkably surprising thing to say, isn't it? For him to say, look, I'll be your mentor in this Christian faith. Follow me. Very clearly, he says, imitate me. Now, you might initially think, and, and on first reading, and because we've only read this particular section, that might seem incredibly arrogant until we see a connection to what is written further uh, earlier in the book, in the chapter, actually, where he makes it very clear, look, the, the person that I am imitating is Jesus. The whole of my life, he says, is shaped by an absolute determination to know Christ. I am absolutely convinced that that the the, the secret to real life, the secret to um, a a faith in Jesus which is not draining me, where I am not continually faced with a sense of guilt and failure, is to immerse myself in, in Jesus, and for him to be my mentor. And he has the ability, because of the way he has lived, he's able to say, now I'm calling you to do the same by imitating me. Imitate me. I found that, when I first looked at that, I thought, it's quite, surprised me in some ways, when you really think about it in depth. He's actually saying, look, Uh, Let me be your model. Number one, Paul makes it very clear that he suffers with all sorts of issues in his life. He says very clearly, I consider myself the chief of sinners, he says. He also says to the church in another letter to the church in, in, in Rome, he says, I live my life continually struggling. Because there's times when I want to do certain things and I don't do them. And there's times when I want to say certain things and I don't say them. And I find myself saying and doing the things that I don't want to do. And then he turns around to these guys in Philippi and he says, model yourself on me. Does that seem strange? How does that work out? 
How is it that on one hand he's saying, look, this is the reality of me. I'm a failure in lots of ways. And at the same time he says, model yourself on me. I think it speaks incredibly powerfully on the reality of the Christian life. The reality of the Christian life. Yes, we're called in the Bible here to model ourselves on Jesus because Paul is saying, look, I, I want to know Jesus. I want to know him in every detail. I want to know, I want my life to be absorbed by him. If you model yourself on me, you will be doing the same. You'll be modeling yourself on a desire to know Jesus. You'll be immersing yourself in the same kind of immersing in Jesus that I'm immersing myself in. So imitate that. And at the same time, he's able to say, oh, and by the way, let me be just a living example for you. We all need that. Uh, every one of us who've been a Christian even for a short time, uh, but most of us who've been a Christian for a long time, we can look back on life and we can see key people. Key people who down through the years have been really important to us. That they've modelled something about the Christian life which has been so helpful. I am not saying that they've been perfect. They've not been perfect. They would never claim to be perfect. But there's been something about them. A, a, a way of living which you look at and you think, I want to be like him. I want to be like that person. Now most of us uh, relate to generations just a couple of generations away from us. One or two generations away from us. In that kind of, but generally because our friendship is is, is that close with, with closer a bit, people a bit closer to our age? This speaks incredibly powerfully about what the church is all about. It speaks incredibly powerfully about our responsibilities to each other. To say, do you know what part of the Christian life is about? It's about living a life which is a mentor for other people. It's about living a life which is imperfect, yes. Falling apart, yes, in lots of ways. Uh, filled with contradiction, yes, in lots of ways. And yet, at the same time, living a life where others might be able to say, I'm helped by you. Do we feel that kind of responsibility? Or are we sucked in to a life which is shaped by the culture around us which says it doesn't matter. You live your own life just for you. You live it independently. Do your own thing. We're not to live like that. We are to live lives which are constantly thinking, how is my life shaping and mentoring and helping those around me? Particularly those just a little bit younger. You younger guys and girls, I'll tell you now, Younger teenagers, they look up at you. They look up to you. you know, they, they shape their lives by the way that you live. 
The things that you do, the things that you say, the priorities that you make in your life, that, that's what shapes the way we think. I want to challenge us as a church this afternoon to say, are we determined to live lives which are good shapes, good focuses, good priorities for those who are in the generations next in line? who are looking up at us and saying, do you know what? I I want to be like that. And then straight away, as I say that, and as I look in the mirror when I say most of that, I think this. The reality is that we live broken, shattered lives, don't we? You know how powerful it is? How helpful it is for somebody to see how to cope with spiritual failure well. How to cope with spiritual failure well. We know that we are going to fall over. We know that we are not going to imitate Jesus perfectly all the time. But do we give a good example of how to fail well? Does that sound strange? How can you fail well? (laughs) Let me give you an example. He was just the most determined, outspoken disciple of Jesus. What, he, was, he was going to be there. In fact, Jesus was probably going to be one step behind Peter because Peter would all but always want to be just one step ahead, protecting Jesus all the way. Uh, and Jesus says, Do you know what, Peter? Before the night is out, you're going to desert, desert me. You're going to deny me three times. I won't do that. As Jesus is taken into the the high priest's palace to be questioned, Peter sneaks along the outside trying to be hidden away. And he's challenged. On three occasions, he denies Jesus. In the middle of all of the chaos of accusations, in the middle of all of the challenge of false accusations, in, in the middle of the threat of an impending flogging and crucifixion, Jesus stops and turns and looks at Peter eye to eye. Can you imagine what that must have meant at that moment in time? Good way to fail well. Peter weeps. He goes out of that place and he weeps. He recognizes the reality. He holds on to it and he doesn't deny the fact that he's denied Jesus. He says, yeah, that's where I am. That's a good way to fail well. Is to confess and say, that is where I am. Do you know how encouraging that can be? Do you know how encouraging it can be for somebody next in line to you who's looking up at you to say, do you know what, I've got it wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to you. I'm sorry to Jesus. I confess that I've done it wrong. I've sinned. That is a good way to fail. (laughs) Imitate me, Paul says. He basically says, imitate me when I'm willing to say that I fail. It's not about being perfect all the time. It's about being honest. 
confess your sins to one another because Jesus is faithful to forgive those sins. And secondly, we see, okay, well, if we've got to choose our mentors well, if we want to be good mentors, if we want to be people who are knit together and caring for each other and successfully encouraging each other and helping each other with a degree of honesty, you might be sat here thinking, this is just strange. To, 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 to really think that, that faith in Jesus can have that kind of change about my life? Should it have that kind of change? Yes. Exactly that kind of change. The kind of change which, which shakes the way we live. <laughs> which makes us accountable and responsible to each other. And at the same time, we draw on the help from each other, don't we? Yeah, we're responsible in encouraging and helping each other. And at the same time, I'm glad that there's people who I can look up to and I can be strengthened by and I can be helped by. I can look at them and I can say, you know, I'm not there yet, but that's how I want to be. When I grow up, I want to be like, (laughs) in spiritual terms. Uh, The Christian faith is about real life. And it also says to us that God works in our lives using ordinary means. You might be thinking, what is it to be a Christian? Is it to be, you know, that sudden kind of explosion? Something happens in life, there's a big flash. Well, some of us, some of you, have experienced that when you came to faith in Jesus. I didn't experience that. I don't know, really, when I became a Christian. I don't know. I know that sometime when I was younger, I put my trust in Jesus. But I do know that when I look at my life, that he's continually been helping me and strengthening me and and putting people in my way to encourage me and to strengthen me. The Christian life is worked out in ordinary stuff. It's worked out by ordinary people sat around me. God could have, could have spoken to us, shaped the way we live by some sort of uh, spiritual zap. And he could have carried on zapping us through life. You know, you don't need anybody else. I'll just zap you. I've got the power to zap you. I can just, you don't worry about anybody else. I'll just zap you, zap you, zap you. So that right the way through your life, you'll know exactly how to live. Don't worry about it. That's not the way he works. The ordinary way that he works, the way that he normally works with us, is like this. Look at people. Choose people who you know are wise and godly and spiritually minded uh, and live like that. Just work it out. Accept that there's going to be failures along the way and work it out. Do it through the ordinary stuff. That is what Paul says here. Imitate me because after all I am the one who is absolutely uh, along with others. Doesn't he disarm us? This is not all about Paul because he then says, and not just me, but others as well. If we see in that verse. Uh, Have a look. Get your eyes open. Choose good mentors. How do I know a bad mentor? Verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So a good mentor is a friend of the cross of Christ. 
A bad mentor is an enemy of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. How do I know a good mentor? How do I know a bad mentor? Well, quite simply, it's a good mentor is somebody who lives and behaves like Jesus. Self-sacrificing. It's not all about me, it's all about him. It's a commitment to him. It's a commitment to living out for his glory, for his name. I, I, I will sacrifice myself. I am not in it for me. It's not about my God, the God is my belly. You know, it's not about, well, I guess that we live in an age where that doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Put yourself in first century uh, Europe or Asia. Food was a scarcity. Food was a scarcity which belonged only to the rich. Yeah, everybody got by, but, but being well-fed was the preserve of the rich, preserved of the, self, the preserve of the self-centered. If you had a God who was your belly, the problem is that many of us have gods that are our bellies these days because there is so much available to us. But in the context of the day, to have a focus on food was all about me. But what's it actually saying? Well, it concludes by saying, people like that live in God's world as though he isn't king. That's how it concludes in verse 19, if you see it there. They've set their mind on earthly things. It's all about now. The kingdom is about now, and the kingdom is about me, and this earth is about what it's all about. This is the focus. Do we live our lives for now? When I say now, I'm talking now and the next 20 or 30 or 40 years. The now in terms of what we can accumulate now, what we can gather together now. Do we live our lives as though this is what it's all about? Because that is the mark of a bad mentor. Because that has no reference. That is not living with any reference to the fact that Jesus has come to this earth, has died and has risen again. It's living as though this is all it is. And yet Jesus coming into this world, dying and rising again, says this is not what it all is. Because we actually go on and see in verse 20 a different perspective. Good mentors live as citizens of heaven now. We live as though heaven is our current dwelling place. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enabled him even to subject all things to himself. I live in God's world with him as king now. Because I live as though my citizenship is in his kingdom, heaven, now. We read a, a letter 
that was written at the end of the first century on Tuesday evening. It was a, a letter uh, to Diognetus, who was uh, the tutor of Marcus Aurelius. The, the writer said this about Christians in the first century, who after all at the time were being ripped to bits in the arena uh, and being burned and, and crucified and all the rest of it. He said this about Christians. They live in their own countries, but they do so as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is like their homeland to them, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. Do we live as if this is just temporary? Do we live as if our real home is heaven? And you might be thinking, is that possible? How do we live as though there is an eternity Well, it goes on to say how we live as if there is an eternity because we live as if Jesus is going to return. Now, what is is heaven all about? What's heaven like? Now, I I think a lot of people have the idea that heaven is sort of, you know, um, uh, white clothes, feathers on your back, um, a, a harp, uh, or if if you're kind of really cool, you get one of those gold horns. And uh, generally you're sitting on clouds, floating around, and uh, we're just kind of spirits, you know, ethereal kind of beings that look very holy. I'll tell you what, if that's heaven, forget it. I don't want to go. What does it say here? There is a point at which on Jesus' return, everybody who has trusted in him receives a new body. A body which is perfected like his. Jesus was flogged, crucified, so much so that he was unrecognizable. Three days later, he rose again, and he was a perfected human body again, albeit that he carried the marks of his death. He was, he was physical. He ate on a beach some fish. He drank. He was a real person. Why do we want to live forever? Because we're made to be like this. And the Bible says that at the time where it all finishes, where it stops, and and Jesus appears, those who have trusted in him will receive a, a real body. A real physical body. A body which is not going to decay. A body which is not going to fall apart and get worse and worse and worse. A body which is perfected. We want to live forever because we're made to be physical. And the problem is that the ailments of life make us feel as if we don't want to live forever, don't we? You know, life gets us down. The brokenness of this world, the brokenness of our physical beings, we say, sack it, I don't want it anymore. But imagine if it was perfected. That is what God intends That is what it is like living with a mindset that says, I I live as though my citizenship is in heaven now. Heaven is worth it because it's real and it's physical. There's a a moment where it all changes. There is a time between now and when Jesus returns when we're waiting for physical bodies. But there's that, that point in the future, well, it all changes. 
I believe in Jesus as my saviour. I don't know whether I'll see him return before I die. I might be dead for a thousand years before he returns. Might be nothing left of me. But I know when he returns, I'll get a physical body again. And it'll be great. And it'll be right again. And I will live a purposeful existence. Doing stuff. Being creative. Relating to other people. Relating to God. Living a life which is worthwhile. That is what heaven's about. If anybody said swap that for a cloud and a golden horn or a harp. Forget it. Because I want to live a life which is worthwhile. And Jesus said. I have come to give you life to the full. Satisfying life. You can have it as though it's yours now. Even though you won't see it until I return. Do we live like that? When we see people. Who are living like that now. Who are living as though that's my objective in the future. They become good mentors. Because we've let go of the stuff of this world. We're not holding on to now as though it's everything. Because there's something way better in the future. Are we good mentors? Are we living out a life which says, I want to know Jesus? Because after all, he is the first one who's received that perfected body. He's already there.